David Grant, again, back in the saddle. Uh, he has a book, Killers of the Flower Moon. We had him on. He wrote The Wager. He wrote this one before. I hadn't read it yet. And guess what? It's a movie now. Scorsese, DiCaprio, De Niro. Ever heard of him? Well, he has. Uh, and they adapted his book into a movie. I want this guy in every week. He's awesome. We'll have him do life advice. It's the Ryan Russillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA final starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older, 18 plus in D.C., and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Modelo. Modelo knows it's not about whether you win or lose. It's about cheering louder, traveling further. It's about showing up no matter what. Because you are a fighter and Modelo is your reward. An ice-cold reward. Rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Modelo, the mark of a fighter. Shop delivery or pickup options near you at ordermodello.com. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Imports, Chicago, Illinois. We don't do this often. We are excited. We have him back. David Grant, author. You remember him from The Wager, and he has a book that came out actually before that, Killers of the Flower Moon. And I read it because I love The Wager so much and because there's a movie coming out in October. Uh, Martin Scorsese's directing DiCaprio starring uh big stuff here and the author of killers of the flower moon it's david grant good to see you again man what's up uh, it's so great to be back here uh I, I feel very blessed to be here twice in the last couple months so all good well thank you for uh sharing some of your valuable time with us so let's just get right to the story uh, i didn't know anything about it um we start in osage county oklahoma uh give us the origin of this area of the country and and what it was supposed to be, this oasis for Native Americans. Yeah, so uh, the Osage Nation, they had once uh, laid claim to much of the central part of America, as if you go all the way back to the 1700s, you know, all the way from the edge of the Rockies to, uh, to Missouri and Kansas. And then um, they were driven off their lands uh, by settlers, and they were eventually confined to a reservation in Kansas, um, and then in the 1860s and 70s, they were once more under siege by settlers and being driven off their land. So they eyed a new territory to move the reservation, in what was then Indian territory. Today, it is part of Oklahoma. And it was an area about the size of Delaware. It was a large uh, area, but it was rocky and infertile. So most white settlers considered it worthless. Um, and so the Osage chief at the time, it stood up and said, our people should move to that area because they would be happy there. Um, and so in 18, early 1870s, they relocated this into this area, which is now Oklahoma. And then what happened? And then in this, you know, area that was supposed to be rocky and fertile and worthless, uh, oil was discovered, some of the largest uh, uh, reserves in the country. And what was so interesting is um, the Osage in about 1906, they were forced to be allotted, which was to break up their communal ownership of the land being forced by the U.S. government. But they very shrewdly slipped into their treaty with the U.S. government, a provision that at the time seemed very curious. It said, we shall maintain all the subsurface mineral rights to our land. At that time, they thought there was just a trickle of oil. And then, of course, shortly later, all these reserves were discovered. And so while much of the surface territory that the Osage had once uh, owned slipped into the hands of whites, they continued, because of this treaty, to maintain control over this area below the surface of the land, about the size of Delaware. They had become the world's first underground reservation. Put into perspective the wealth we were talking about once the oil booms of the 1910s, 1920s happened because of that clause, this was their oil. What yeah. kind of wealth are we talking about? So initially, you know, was as, as the money trickled in, it was a few thousand dollars, but gradually it accumulated until in 1923, uh, there were about 
2,000 or so members of the Osage Nation on the tribal roll, and those 2,000 received the equivalent today of what would be worth about $400 million. They were considered the wealthiest or among the wealthiest people per capita in the world. And so this kind of belied longstanding stereotypes of Native Americans that could be traced all the way back to that original sin, which was the first contact between settlers, white settlers and Native Americans uh, uh, in the continent. And, you know, they lived in these large terracotta houses. It was said at the time, whereas one American might own a car in the 1920s, each Osage owned 11 of them. They had white servants, which again, belied longstanding stereotypes. And so the way it worked was, if you were a member of this tribe, there were head rights. And the head rights, essentially, each person that was in the tribe was assigned a certain head right, which meant that they owned, you know, whatever rights to different oil production. But then if somebody were lost in the family, the head right would then go to somebody else in the family. So can you help us understand kind of the numbers here that we're talking about? Yeah. So... (laughs) Again, because uh, the Osage have been driven off their lands for uh, so, uh, so many centuries and suffered sickness and massacres, their numbers had dwindled to just a few thousand. Um, and there were about 2,000 or so on the tribal roll. And each of them was given a head right, which was essentially a share in this mineral trust, as you described it. Unlike surface land, which could be bought or sold um, and thus easier to swindle by white settlers, um, a head right could not be bought or sold. It could only be inherited, um, and and so it was passed down. So if somebody died, then their head right would pass down, which of course then becomes an invitation to a very uh, sinister form of crime. Yeah, reading this and then thinking, and and as we both know, there are so many things that are lost in history. Right, there are so many things that you're going. Wait a minute, and then you're looking at the pictures and you're seeing the clothing and the towns and the homes and the cars, and you're going, "This tribe was the wealthiest per capita in the world, in the world." Um, but as we know, where the book goes, uh, white people, certain white people, were not going to let this happen. Your story starts with Molly Burkhart. Um, give us her backstory and kind of when this first becomes. Something where the tribe is like, something's wrong. Yeah. Molly is a really remarkable woman and in many ways is the heart and soul of of the book. Um, She was somebody who was born in an Osage Lodge in the uh, 19th century, um, speaking Osage. At just the age of seven, she was, or seven or eight, she was forcibly uprooted from her home and made to go to a Catholic missionary boarding school where, where she could no longer speak Osage or wear an Osage blanket. And then within just a few decades, uh, because of the Osage money, she was living in a large terracotta house. She had white servants, and she had married a white settler named Ernest Burkhart, whom she had met because he had been her chauffeur. And Molly, in many ways, straddled not only two centuries, but two civilizations in the 1920s. And um, soon her family begins to be targeted. One day, her older sister, Anna, disappears from the house. And Molly looks everywhere for her. And about a week later, her body is found in a ravine and she has been shot and killed. And then Molly's mother, Lily, uh, begins to grow mysteriously sick and within two months dies. And evidence would indicate she'd been poisoned. So within the span of about two months, Molly loses her older sister and her mother. Molly had a younger sister named Rita, who was so terrified by these killings, she had moved closer to town to be near Molly. And one night, Molly, at about three in the morning, heard a loud explosion, and she went to the window, and she looked out. And in the distance, she could see this large orange ball rising into the sky, looked like the sun had burst violently into the night, and somebody had planted a bomb underneath her younger sister's house, killing her younger sister, her sister's husband, and an 18-year-old maid. Uh, and so Molly, you know, obviously is realizing that her family is being targeted, but it's not just her family. Other members of the Osage Nation are being poisoned, blown up, um, uh, and killed one after the other in what became known as the Osage Reign of Terror. And what we were having uh, have happened throughout this, too, is that you had these guys coming in, white men from out of town that were like, I want to marry one of these women. because." if they're out of the picture. So this became a very common thing um, where 
as you're reading it, you're like, oh, okay, this woman's married to who? And this guy's from where? And as you're seeing it unfold, um, you almost can't, you can't believe like at one point, one of the husbands, and I don't want to give away everything here, but one of the husbands is essentially talking about being part of a plot where his own children who would have been head rights holders have to be taken out of the picture. Like yeah. the level of, of, of evil that takes place here, even though you know it's coming in the book, it's hard to fathom. It is unfathomable. And, um, it, and these are inheriting schemes. Um, again, because a head right could only be uh, inherited. It couldn't just be swindled in other means, the way land and territory often was. And so what you have is people marrying into families and systematic, systematically plotting to kill partners. And even um, in some cases, their children. You know, when I first began uh, researching the book, I would collect photographs, some of them which are in the book, and um, of the victims. And initially, I had collected the victims of Molly's family, but it just kept on growing and growing and growing until I had a wall just lined with photographs of uh, members of the Osage Nation who were being systematically killed. And so it was an evil I could never fathom. And even after I spent five years researching and writing that book, I could never, you know, just fully fathom that level of evil. It really is evil. We're in the 1920s for a good chunk of it. Um, these murders are happening, but nobody's solving anything. You know, the poisoning's happening all the time. So then every time they're like, that guy was young. It doesn't make any sense. And he was always around this. There's insurance people. It feels like law enforcement is in on it. And then you have J. Edgar Hoover who becomes involved. What, what was the motivation? Like, how did it get to that point? I mean, I know the yeah. simple answer is that the the fact that nobody really wanted to solve any of this stuff, but the Hoover element of this is not as straightforward as just, Hey, catch the bad guys, which I thought was really interesting in the book. Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, the Osage and, and, and Molly, and it's a really important point to make very courageously crusaded for justice. I mean, Molly is going around, you know, banging on doors, pleading with the authorities who were white to investigate these crimes while putting a bullseye on her back. Uh, and she becomes a target. Um, and so were other Osage. And at one point, they actually send somebody, a representative, um, to go to Washington, D.C. to try to get help, to plead with officials who aren't, you know, local officials who they suspect are corrupt and in on these uh, in on these plots. And this guy gets to D.C. He's carrying, a, he checks into a boarding house. He, he has carrying a pistol. And a Bible, he receives, receives a telegram from someone in Oklahoma that says, be careful. And then he leaves the boarding house. This is in D.C., all the way from, from, from Oklahoma. And he is abducted and beaten and stabbed to death and killed. Uh, and a Washington Post headline uh, later declared conspiracy to kill rich American Indians, which is those Osage already knew. And finally, in 1923, the Osage Tribal Council issues a resolution pleading with federal authorities to step in. And it was then that the case was taken up by the Bureau of Investigation, which we now know today as the Federal Bureau of Investigation, was renamed. And who this was a little bit before Hoover had taken full control of the Bureau. And the FBI that had completely bungled the case in its early operation. And the FBI back then was just a bit of a ragtag operation, had a smattering of agencies. They didn't even have the authority uh, to make arrests uh, back then. Um, and they get one um, uh, outlaw out of jail, um, uh, hoping they could use him as an informant. And instead, he slips away from the bureau agent, robs a bank and kills a police officer. So Hoover, who's now in charge, is terrified of a scandal. He had actually wanted not to investigate this case. He wanted to dump it back on state authorities. But now he's afraid of a scandal. And he's afraid, it's hard to believe Hoover, who would go on to serve decades in power, but he was then insecure about his authority. So he needs to do something about this case. And that's when he really steps in to try to get some help. That is Tom White who is boots on the ground, understands not necessarily the Osage Nation, but that part of the country. Um, can you sh please, because it was one of my favorite parts of the book, the Tom White backstory, his father, 
the prisons, the Texas Rangers, all that early stuff where, you know, Tom ultimately becomes, other than Molly, probably your favorite person in the book. Yeah. So White and, and, and Tom White, in many ways, um, also straddles two centuries. He was born in a log cabin on the frontier. He grew up in a family of lawmen. His father had been the sheriff. He and his brothers were Texas Rangers. Tom White were Texas Rangers. So his brothers, one of whom was killed uh, in the line of duty. Tom White kind of grew up practicing uh, law enforcement at a time where justice was often meted out by the smoking barrel of a gun. And then in 1917, he joins the Bureau and he has to suddenly adopt these new modern techniques like fingerprinting and handwriting analysis. And he has to wear a suit, which he can't stand. Uh, He has to file paperwork, which he hates even more. Um, And Hoover, when he came in, was purging these old frontier lawmen uh, from the Bureau in favor of these college-educated boys. Uh, The frontiermen like Tom White would refer to them as Boy Scouts. Uh, and it's like baseball of, front offices. Yes, yeah, exactly. And 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 in fact, you know, many of them. And Hoover decided to keep just a few of these old frontier lawmen on the on the force uh, because they knew their way around the crime scene. So Tom White and a few other of these frontier lawmen, they were sometimes referred to as the Cowboys, were kept within the bureau. White was uh, the son of a warden, which is crazy stuff. He grows um, up in basically in a jail. Uh, yeah, but his father was a sheriff, and then he becomes a, a ward, and he witnesses a hanging when he's just a kid. Um, and yeah, he basically grows up, uh, you know, uh, just outside a jail cell. And then he becomes a warden later on uh, in life, which leads to its own adventure, which I'm not going to spoil um, here. We could do the full scope of it, give the ending. I'm not going to do that. Um, but what I love in what you do this book, the last 50 pages, is you just pivot. Like, it's just Paige, the reporter. And then yes. you combine the story and the conclusion, which we learn from the book part of it, that the conclusion is incomplete because as the reporter, you re- you realize that going back and looking at all this stuff for years, what kind of, I don't know if it's a number, but the scope, the magnitude of this reign of terror in comparison to what this just story is. Yeah. So so Hoover um, turns to, to Tom White. Um, to try to solve the case. Um, and basically, you know, at first, Tom White thinks he's being fired by Hoover when he gets summoned to DC. And instead, he, he realizes that Hoover has kind of taken him on to save Hoover's bacon. And uh, White puts together an undercover team uh, to go in, including, most interestingly enough, a Native American named John Wren, who's probably the only Native American bureau agent given Hoover's prejudices in the bureau. And they go undercover, and they are able to ultimately capture uh, some of the killers. And when I began uh, researching the book, I kind of thought that the, this was a story or a, a, a case about a kind of singular evil figure who, along with a few henchmen, had committed these crimes. And that was the theory kind of of the FBI. And then the more time I spent in the Osage Nation interviewing Osage elders, they began to tell me about these other cases, uh, suspicious deaths in their family that had never been investigated. And then one day I went out to an archive um, in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, which is part of the National Archives. It's about the size of, it looks like an airport hangar, like something out of the, you know, the, the Raiders of the Lost Ark where they stick the Last Covenant. And I was doing research on the guardianship system, which is this very racist system in which the federal government had appointed white guardians uh, to manage wealthy Osage's fortunes. And just and, to hammer that point home, because I don't think yeah. I brought it up, that once it becomes the most wealthy place per capita and the natives are still spending money, they appoint white guardians who then start trading the head rights like cattle, um, where it was actually like, oh, it was considered okay, this absurd structure of having white guardians then giving allowances and then there would be different investments and different loans and different pricing. I mean, it just they just went in there and decided, hey, we're, we're going to make money off of this. So sorry so to interrupt, but I no, thought no, it was I'm glad, important. I'm glad you made that point because it was a complete criminal enterprise. And it was, and they swindled, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars from members of the Osage Nation, these guardians. And it was also, you know, we sometimes, it was not um, 
uh, abstractly racist. It was literally racist. It was based on a quantum of Osage blood. So if you were a full-blooded Osage, you were given this white guardian to manage your fortunes. You could be the, an Osage chief managing a nation, and you would be told whether you get this toothpaste down at the corner store. Um, and so in any case, I went to this archive. I was doing research on guardians, and I found this uh, uh, a booklet of that listed guardians and whose members of those stage nations' fortunes they had managed. And the only other thing in this booklet written was that if one of the Osages had died, some anonymous bureaucrat had been dead next to their name. And I noticed that there is a guardian who has five Osages whose fortune they managed. And I see the word dead written next to the first name, dead next to the second name, dead next to the third name, fourth name, fifth name, all dead. Five. God, that's crazy. And I begin looking through this booklet. I see another Osage Garden who had about 12 Osages whose fortune they had managed with about a 50% mortality rate. And on and on it went. And no doubt some of these deaths were of natural causes, but it defied any natural death rate. Remember, those Osages were, were, were wealthy. They weren't starving. They, they had medicine. And I began. And you to make then, that point too for anybody that would listen and go, well, wait a minute, when are you writing dead at the end of the, end of the term of life? But it's the, the way you were comparing average lifespan in this area, it was so, the death rate was so absurd in comparison yeah. to national averages. And at the timing of the research too, it wasn't like a log that was being updated 20 years later. No, no, it was just covering a few years. It was just right. a couple of years span. Yeah. Thank you. And it, yeah, it was just, and, and, and then I traced, I tried to look into some of those cases and I saw at least in some of them evidence of poisoning of a head right being stolen, a guardian stealing money, um, complaints of a killing. And I realized that that, you know, initially seeming anodyne booklet really contained the hints of a systematic murder campaign. And this is a very long answer to your question, but um, what that booklet did and what those other interviews did was it demolished, completely demolished the original conception I had of the book I was writing. And I began to realize that this was less a story about a singular figure. It was not a story about, it was less a story about who did it than who didn't do it. It was about a culture of killing. It was about doctors who were administering poisons. It was about morticians who were covering up bullet wounds. It was about sheriffs and prosecutors and other lawmen who were on the take. And it was about many others who remained complicit in their silence. I can't wait for the movie again, October 6th. Um, can you take us through that timeline where you write this book, you share the story, and then all of a sudden, you know, maybe the number one guy that could ever want to do your story is, is I don't know, you know, I, I imagine somebody else reaches out first, but give us the fun part of the timeline. Yeah. So before the, uh, the book, uh, shortly before the book was published, it was shared and, um, um, uh, by my agent and um, various people expressed interest and ultimately it ended up in the hands of all people you know the, you know Martin Scorsese uh, with Leonardo DiCaprio and and then others would come on board uh, Lily Gladstone who plays Molly who's just remarkable in the movie and uh, Robert De Niro um, and I, I'll confess you know I, I you I know you've written scripts and stuff I've I've never tried to do that. And so there's always a nervousness. There's like, at first there's like that excitement and then there's the nervousness. You're turning over something you spent five years working on and you realize that the sensitivity of a story like this, because, you know, it's real history. It's like, and it's a monstrous crime and a racial injustice. So you're like, and so you're nervous. And um, at, at, for me, the most important thing along the way that happened um, was that the production team and, uh, and, and Scorsese and all this, began to work with members of the Osage Nation. And I think when people see the film, they will see the, the fruits of that, that the, the Osage were so deeply involved in the production. They shot on location, which, you know, I don't know much about the movies, but I think is very rare these days. I think, you know, if you don't have tax rebates or something, you know, nobody ever films what, where things happen. And so they filmed actually uh, an Osage territory, right in the towns where these things happen. Um, I talked about doctors administering poisons. They shoot in one of the rooms where these two of the notorious doctors in my book who were allegedly administering poisons to, you know, were doing this. Um, and they had Osage language consultants. You'll hear the language spoken. Um, and then, you know, there are many Osage actors in the film. Uh, 
uh, a lot of them were my friends and uh, with talking roles. I, they weren't actors to the best of my knowledge beforehand, um, but they are actors. Um, and, and, and in fact, I think one of the most powerful scenes uh, is the scene with the Osage Tribal Council, all played by, or almost all played by uh, members of the Osage Nation uh, when they're confronting Tom White at the beginning of the investigation. I think it will just take people's breath away, that scene. Uh, I, it was great reading it because I kept thinking, because I, you know, I knew the movie was coming out. I'm like, I wonder how the screenwriter is going to attack this, right? And it's Eric Roth who has a bit of a resume here. <laughs> uh, Dune, Star is Born, Good Shepherd, um, Forrest Gump. I mean, it's just, he even did Ali. So I, and I know Scorsese also has a co-writing credit on this, but I was like, okay, I think it's Tom White. I was like, I think it's Tom White. Because in the beginning, I'm like, okay, you know, whoever you're introduced to first, you're kind of just you, reflexive where you'll be like, okay, it's Molly. And you're like, wait, is it Hale? And then I was like, ah, oh, the Tom White thing and all the different stuff that happens, then his backstory, if you wanted to get into that. And then I, you can set me straight here, but I had read that DiCaprio originally was going to be Tom White, and then he wants to be Molly Burkhart's husband, Ernest. What? Did you know about any of that? Because I imagine they had to kind of rewrite it a little bit. Yeah, they, they, you know, you know, I'm not that involved, but, um, you know, uh, when DiCaprio called me to discuss, he wanted to discuss uh, changing the role. And I actually thought it was a really good idea because, you know, when you're telling a book, you could do a really sweeping history. And, you know, my book covers all the way back, you know, from when the Osage were driven off their lands um, to the time in the 20s in the boomtown. And then you have that critical section, which we talked about in the present, where I get to kind of show what happened today and, and this kind of culture of complicity and all the other killings. But a movie kind of focuses in on a period of time. And so what they decide to do is to focus on what was really, I think, the center or the heart of the book, which is Molly Burkhart and this relationship with Ernest uh, Burkhart, her husband, because it's a representative um, and I think it gets at this level of complicity because they're not going to be able to cover the third act and the, you know, all the students. So I think, you know, when he called it, I actually thought it was, the, it was actually a really good idea to do. It does mean that Tom White's role is, is, you know, less central, but it's still a third or part of the movie, which is, which is, and, um, Jesse Plemons plays him and he's terrific. So, um, that was the kind of shift that took place. I don't know about all the thinking that went into that or exactly why it happened. Um, but essentially what they try to do, um, when you're a historian, you could only tell a story from the outside in. Um, and it's really, it's something I've, I've really only become aware of now watching these films because I've never really, you know, again, done script. So when you're a historian, you can't inhabit people's consciousness. You're trying to get as close to their consciousness as possible, but you're not actually expressing it. You know, you're not in their kitchens or in their bedrooms. You, there are all these places you cannot go. And so my book is told from the outside in. Um, and what they do is tell the story from the inside out and um, uh, focusing in on that relationship. And they have the wager as well, right? So those rights are gone. I can't hit you up for those. Yeah, that was a, well, you could only say, I was like, okay. Uh, and what's great too is because I don't know, I was like, when I got to watch, I, you know, I, I had a bird's eye seat to this thing, which was kind of, I have to say, kind of fantastic. Like just the, because again, I'm like a movie fan, but I don't get involved in the movie business. And I'm just like, and I got to watch how they did this, the, the created these sets, um, how they work with the members of the how they developed the roles and the scripts. I just, you know, I just got to watch a little observe. And, but they, there's a reason why I, I realized there's a reason why they're the best, like why they, it, which is actually comforting to me. You know, it's not just like a, a lark, that they're great, like the level of dedication and curiosity and focus and concentration. I mean, they're artists and I got to witness that. And so I was like, it was actually comforting to me. And uh, obviously after watching them do that, when they expressed some interest in the wager, I was like, oh, okay, done. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you, but it is something like handing your child over, you know, you're, you're handing this over. And I almost admire that you can be hands off with the amount of hours that you have to put into the research for these books. Yeah. You have to just almost adjust yourself psychologically. And I, 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 I kind of learned to get there because the truth is you don't have control. So if you try to have control, you will lose your mind. And so the key is to get into the hands of people who actually know what they're doing and who you trust. And, and I think for me, the thing that I really care about and the thing that always motivates me, because these are such, you know, 
getting to talk to you is the fruits of uh, of of the book coming out. But you know, you spent five or six years on these things, just kind of lost, suffering, digging up facts, lots of tedium, never know if you're going to finish, running out of money, all these things, and. Um, but the thing that keeps you going is that you care about these stories. I mean, the story of Killers of the Flower Moon is such a powerful story, such an important piece of history. Uh, the Wager is such a riveting piece is story. And so for me, the idea that these stories will have another life, that they keep radiating out into the world, um, that to me is what is so wonderful. And I'll just tell you one key story, um, which is when this when I first decided to do Killers of the Flower Moon, I made a, or be, when I first heard about the story of the Osage murders in the Marina Terra, I couldn't find much about it. I made a trip out to the Osage Nation. And when I went there, the first thing I did was I went to the museum and there was this great photograph on the wall and it was taken in 1924 and it had showed members of the Osage Nation along with white settlers. But part of that photograph, as I described in the book, was missing. And the museum director, Catherine Rick, when I was just meeting for the first time, I asked her why that part of the photograph was missing. And she said, because it contained a figure so frightening, she had decided to remove it. And she pointed to that missing panel and she said, the devil was standing right there. And then she went down into the basin and she pulled up an image of the missing panel. It showed one of the key killers of the, of the Osage. And I was so haunted by that image because the Osage had removed the photograph, not to forget what had happened, but because they couldn't forget. And yet so many people, and I include myself, we're completely ignorant of this history. We had, in effect, excised it from our consciousness. So the idea that a book and then a movie will allow people to begin to learn more about this history and that it will lead them to read other books, books by members of the Osage Nation, maybe they'll visit the Osage Nation Museum the way I did. To me, that is ultimately the gift of these things, the thing that makes me most happy. That's a great way to complete our visit. Uh, you have a gift for this. And thanks, as always, for sharing it with us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Ryan. Thank you so much for sharing the history with folks. This episode is supported by State Farm. So look, a little rock hit your dude's windshield on the highway. And at first you're like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's just a little mark. Nope. Now by the end of the ride, it's a big crack. And it'd been a while. So I check out the State Farm app. I go, hey, this is what happened. And the funny thing is, is I was like, do I want to go app first or do I call old school guy? Probably should call. I was like, let's check out the app. Not only did it take a minute to get done, they set up the glass replacement. They told me the estimate ahead of time, said, do you want to go ahead with it? And I was like, now I understand it's all in front of me, all done. I don't even have to talk to anybody. That's how efficient the insurance game has become. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, just like I did, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. The app was so good, I didn't even need to do that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. You know what I hate? Hate is after lunch, there's all this time before dinner. I hate it. So I'm always like, do I do this? It's like, you should. Gain season. Throw in a little something extra, an appetizer that just starts hours before dinner. It just gets so frustrating when there aren't great options. That's where Arby's new two for $5 chicken wraps come in. Available in your choice of ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for that afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. 
food buddies. Arby's two for $5 chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Life advice. Lifeadvicerr at gmail.com. All right, let's get right to it. My friends boned me. B-O-N-E-D. 25 years old, 6'3", in thick-soled sneakers. 175, pickup comp is Denzel Valentine. Overall package seems good in theory. Tall guard, you can pass or shoot, but it straight up doesn't work in practice. That's a good one. I like that. I, like I didn't that. hear that one a lot. Uh, my main friend group, me, other three, three other guys, uh, been together since middle school. We grew up in New York and then all moved back here after college. The four of us going to get a place together last year, but I backed nice. out before we started seriously looking. I know. I love when guys like in their 20s to just 30 are like, we're still living together. I actually think it's, I couldn't do it. But with other friends that did it, I'm like, you guys are fucking awesome. But I backed out before we started seriously looking because my mom had a fairly serious health issue uh, and wanted me to stay with her for another year. My friends got a pretty nice three-bedroom place in a building with a crappy gym. This is important. And promised that the four of us would get a place together this year in July when their lease was up. Come this year, they absolutely fucked me. From the moment we started looking for a place, uh, they were super unrealistic. They would only live in two neighborhoods, Murray Hill and Fidei. Is it Fidei? in New York? I, don't, I forget. I don't know. Uh, which both suck ass for what it's worth. Wow, that's a low ranking. And refused to move anywhere that didn't have a state-of-the-art gym, so we couldn't find anything in our original price range. Why would you want to only have the hotel, the, the apartment gym? I don't... Part of like going to a gym is like... I mean, I don't talk to anybody, but for most people, I think it is. I propose that we get two two-bedroom apartments near each other because there were a bunch of two-bedrooms that fit their insane criteria, but like codependent babies, the three of them said they needed to live together. In mid-June, they told me they were re-signing their lease for their current apartment, leaving me out of my ass. By this point, I turned out a bunch of other potential roommates and didn't have another option outside of them. I since found a new roommate through a broker and signed a lease with them, but I'm still incredibly mad at my friends. Every time I try to come up with a solution, living in Brooklyn, splitting up into pairs, increasing our budget, living in a fucking building without a fucking gym. I agree with you on that part. Uh, they wouldn't compromise on anything. They said that having a gym was a non-negotiable thing for them and they wouldn't live in Brooklyn because it's not safe. We're all entitled trust fund babies, if you couldn't tell by this point. Do they like you? Um, well, the fact that I think there's because this kind of happened to me, but the fact that they all decided a year or so ago, like we're all doing this together. And then unfortunately, the emailer has the situation with the mother's health. Like if you had never lived together and there was never a plan and it was kind of like, a, hey, maybe we'll all get a place together. And then this happened. I would be more worried about your standing with this friend group. But I'm I'm feeling good about your standing with this friend group because I think sometimes, man, just moving is such a hassle. It it's three dudes in their 20s that were like, hey, we can just stay here. Like we've been searching for this four bedroom thing. I don't even know why you'd want to. Like in reality, an apartment, depending you know how sick it would be, you probably wouldn't want as you start getting closer to thirty. Want to be in a four bedroom anyway? The gym thing, I agree with the emailer, doesn't make a ton of sense, but yeah, you know, they probably were just like, hey, do you want to just fucking renew and not have to do any of the shit that comes with moving because this kind of checks a bunch of boxes? And we asked them to live with us a year ago, and it didn't work out. wasn't his fault. It was a very good reason, but you know that's three guys thinking about how to eliminate hassles from their life. I am like in a hassle zone right now at the worst time of the year for me, every day is a hassle. And it like I don't know when the finish line is coming. And I, I don't know why I signed up for this hassle because now I'm looking back being like, this was really fucking stupid, but I did it to myself because of other reasons. And every day when I go, what's the hassle list? I'm thinking about these three dudes. They got to dip in. They're fucking watching <laughs> Sunday night baseball. No, they're not. <laughs> 
And they're like, do you want to just order subs and renew the list? <laughs> yeah. We know, cancel the U-Haul. Sweet. Let's get these fucking boxes out of here. Even better. And let's go work out tomorrow in our gym. Yeah, All right. So there's, right. There's, there's more to this. All right. So um, there's no reason that we couldn't have found a better solution besides their selfishness. All right. But I think we addressed the reason for their selfishness. And I got to be honest, if you're going to be selfish about like, hey, I don't feel like moving this summer, that's what I can kind of fuck with a little bit. All right. Uh, and I know you're probably not hearing what we want to hear here. It also uh, feels like they chose proximity to an elliptical machine over 12 years of friendship. No, I know it's a really clever way of framing it, but they chose everything I just talked about, not having to do all of those things. That's what they chose. They didn't necessarily choose it over friendship. They just chose it because they're dudes. I'm the only child, so long-term friendships are very important to me, but I'm having a hard time getting over this. Maybe you're having a hard time getting over it because you are an only child. I could also invert it a little bit. Well, <laughs> just, just throwing it out there. This guy's like, I'm not listening anymore. It's going to be like an Equinox guy. <laughs> I thought these guys are some of my best friends, and it really hurts they treat me with such little regard. This all went down about six weeks ago, and outside of a brief text thread about uh, Jacob Toppin, we're all Nick's sickos, we've barely talked since then. So you haven't talked in like six weeks since except the OB Toppin move. They've insisted that we're always going to be boys. You know that. Invited me on a Hamptons trip the other weekend, but I didn't go. I knew that I'd start a friendship-ending fight if I went because I didn't have a ton of self-restraint. And as I said before, I'm incredibly mad at them. To make matters worse, I broke up my girlfriend of four years pretty much the day before the situation with my friends happened. Overall, I just feel so alone, which is one of the worst ways to feel. I could handle breaking up with my girlfriend or breaking up with my friends, but it's rough that they had to happen at the exact same time. They don't. What should I do? They don't have to happen. All right. On the one hand, I don't want to throw away our friendship because we've known each other for such a long time. On the other, I want the streets to run red with the blood of my frenemies. Not literally, <laughs> although at this point, who can say? I know I should just get over it, but I resent that I had to be the much bigger person when I did nothing wrong. It's bullshit that it's my responsibility to repair the friendship when they're the ones who broke it. Why should I have to take the high road when taking the low road is so much easier and so much more fun? I don't think we'll ever be as close as we were before, but I still think it's worth reconciling with them. Question mark. Pro. We stay friends. Con. I look like a bitch by going crawling back to them. No, you don't. It's so fucking stupid. I'm sorry, man. Like, I kind of like you, but I just really disagree with where your head's at with this. Or do I go ballistic on them and unload 12 years of grievances and dirty laundry? Pro would be cathartic. Con, everyone would hate me. Another fucking terrible idea, dude. You just get a bad idea fucking program you start using. Uh, how can I get revenge in a way that makes me look cool and handsome instead of psychotic and petty? Do I just need new friends? Sorry for the long email. I took an Adderall and got this out of me. All right. <laughs> hey, man. First of all, fucking relax. All right. Uh, I hope you really paid attention to what we said about the hassle part of this, because that's what they chose. They chose the non-hassle. Now, clearly, I don't know the intimacy, the the actual real dynamic of the friendship. If this is part of phase one of like a three-phase plan of just ultimate phase out of this guy. My guess is that's not the case because they invited to the Hamptons weekend. But like a bitch, you decided to not go, which was a stupid fucking move. I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, sophomore year in the dorms, roommate, capital lacrosse team, McGurk, NBD. Uh, so a lot of guys in the mix were lacrosse guys, fraternity guys. And we had some guys that were our best friends that quit during pledging. I know hazing's not an awesome topic right now, but there's like five or six guys who were like, fuck this, which I totally understood. Actually, at the time, I didn't understand retroactively. I understand now. All right. So there was a housing situation where if you were in the fraternity, you had to live in the house. The understanding was you would live in the house for one year. Um, but the coolest thing ever, at least for Burlington, is to try to get like one of these marquee houses. There are probably like four or five of these houses with these addresses, and they'd be handed down from older guys, whether it was through a team, whether it was through um, some other social fucking deal. Th- there were these like premier houses, and you were always trying to get one of those. I was lucky enough to be in one of them my senior year. Uh, these guys, their junior year, they jumped in this other one and they stayed there another couple of years. I actually, because I still lived in the dorms and was living with all these dudes, I was better friends with a lot of the guys, whether it was a lacrosse team or lacrosse fraternity hybrid or the guys that had decided not to join the fraternity because it began somebody sucker punched somebody and it was pretty fucked up. So as I'm like, this is my roommate, roommate, dorm roommate. And then they come to me and they're like, hey, we signed a lease and you're out. Like you're, we're not living with you. 
but everybody figured you had to live in the fraternity at some point anyway. And I was like, yeah, but you kind of have to, but sometimes a little cross guys, which is, but it was understood if you joined a fraternity at some point, you had to live in the house, at least in the Northeast, because you kind of had to keep the thing going financially. And then it was like, then you'll be in one of the houses, whatever your senior year. So it's not a big deal. When I asked, I was like, well, how did that happen? How does it happen that you guys went and did all these things and no one ever said fucking anything about it to me? And they were like, there's one guy, which I knew at the time, he doesn't like you. We talked about you and he said, I don't want to live with him. I'm like, so did you take it to a vote? And it was like, no, pretty much um, it wouldn't matter if it was five to one. The one vote in that way was more powerful because he was saying, I don't want to live with him where everybody else was like, yeah, it's fine. Like whatever, he can live in the house. And then I got replaced by somebody else who was basically in love with another dude so badly that I don't know, it was almost fucking weird. So the point is, is it wasn't that they were like, Hey, you're going to live in fraternity. We're going to live in this other house. It's this awesome house. And like, this is our plan. It was that no one ever said fucking anything to me. Right. It was that, I'm like, you guys made sure I never knew that you were looking at the house. You made sure you never talked around it in front of me, even though we were with each other nonstop. And then when it was too late to contain what had happened, then you had to like send one guy who was I'm, I was closest with, who was my dorm roommate, to be like, hey, this is what we did and this is how it all happened. I go, granted, I was going to live in the house, but I just don't, I don't like the way this was handled. I had a right to be really pissed because the way they did it was fucked up. And the conversations that were had were kind of fucked up. And the one guy that didn't like me, I still don't like to this day. But I really liked all the other guys. Well, except for one of the other guys too. But these are guys I'm still in touch with now. This is this is the, what I'm trying to get through to you. Those friendships, the guys that I'm still close with, whether it's constant contact or contact like once every year plus, those moments still matter to me. They mean a lot to me. So I could have gone blowtorch. Hey, fuck you guys. I'm going to go do this and then not been friends with them. What? after co- In college for a couple of years? After college? What's the point of that? I understood as I got older what their reasons were, what the one guy's reasons were. I didn't think they were good reasons then. I don't think they're great now uh, because they weren't. But you know, it's hard to kind of process this stuff when you're that much younger. So you could, you could just say fuck it to these lifelong friends. You said you met what when you were in junior high, but then what? You're punishing yourself more than you're punishing them. This is really an overreaction. Now, unless there's some other thing where they're plotting and this is the plan the whole way, but I don't think it was. I think it was three 25-year-old guys that didn't want to fucking deal because when you have the option to deal or not deal, especially when that you're that age, you're going to take the option to not deal. And you need to think of it that way. They didn't blowtorch your friendship. They blowtorch deal. And if you can get through that, you'll be much better off in the long run. This isn't some ego thing. Nobody slept with your girl, okay? This is just a housing situation where you're trying to find a four-bedroom that checked every box and there just wasn't and they could just not move. And that's what they wanted to do. So don't cost yourself the remaining stretches of those friendship years. Don't be turning down invites to shit. You know, be the bigger man here. You can have one night where you're like, hey, I was pissed about it. But I also wonder if you're used to having everything go your way because you're your only child. It's not true for every only child, but- it's true for a lot of them where you can't even believe like, wait, why the fuck don't I get to play with the toy? I've never had to share the toy before. Like everything goes my fucking way. So I can't, like, what does this mean? So it's worth asking yourself those tough questions, but costing yourself these three friends because of this, because they didn't want to pack their shit is a mistake. Yeah. I mean, I think life's not fair. That's the first thing, right? I mean, you, you guys had the whole thing. Like, like, let's just like zoom out. What if you were in like school, right? If you were in school, in college, right, and you had to take a year off and life went on without you for a year and you came back and it's like it that would have been it wouldn't even be a thing. You'd just be like, I got to find new guys to live with pretty much like if, if guys secured a house in school, especially like you were talking about Potsdam was sort of the, similar when there's, you know, certain houses that if you can get you fucking stay in there until you graduate. And even then, maybe stick around another semester or something like if if this was if this was that like you would just you would probably understand like, hey. We found our our thing, you know. You're a year behind, whatever. I know this is this is a real life, so it's a little different. But you know, life life moved on for a year while you took care of your mom, which is what you should have done. And I think if you had a chance to do it again, you that's what you would have done. But that's sort of that's sort of a consequence. I know they said that you know a year from now we'll 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 fix this, but that's kicking the can down the road a little bit. It's much easier said than done. Uh, that doesn't mean that you know nobody's word is good for anything. But I think you understand that things change in a year. And also, you know, 
you're you know when you're not there you're you're not part of the stories you hear the stories it's them those three they they probably talked about this and 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 like they've they have kind of sort of a hive yeah. mind on this whole thing yeah. what you were not even a part of so like they they might have just they might have just been like hey this is really good maybe we'll make our standards pretty high we know what a we know what a four bedroom goes for in this city so we'll just say like you know We'll just say we need one that's going to be under seven grand a month or whatever the price is. We know what we won't find. And if we do, great, we'll move it to an awesome building. But if not, like, we'll just we'll just move on. I think what you should do is you should say to them, you guys really bone me. This sucks. I, like, you know, but st still like hang out with them and be like, hey, listen, can we try to like, can we try to do this next year? Can we really like what, 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 you know, what could we do here? Not really like don't be like how much you hate it all the time. But you're like, I'm with a guy that I don't know. And I'm starting to like him less by the day or whatever. It's just like, man, I really wish, really wish this could have worked out. Is there any way we could do this next year or something? Try to try to figure out something, but don't like, don't be like rage and, and bring it up all the time. But I do think you should say your piece for real. He's way too mad about this. Right. Unless there was a coordinated effort of like, hey, let's pretend, let's lead him on, and then let's do all this stuff behind his back. But from the email, it feels like it was all pretty much out in the open. Like, do you really think they would go looking at all of these places? Now, they may have been unrealistic in what their expectations were for a new apartment, but would they do that? Would they go through all this stuff? So yeah, maybe there's a small part of it. Based on the email, the information that we have in this email, I think you're way more upset about it than you should be. And you may end up costing yourself far more by losing friends that you're going to want. It's going to be fucking awesome to still have friends living in the city you know, in your 20s and your 30s. You're just going to bail on these guys because of this stuff, dumb shit. And when you talk it out at some point, you can talk about how pissed you are. I wouldn't do it after eight Coors Lights. Yeah, but but I would although say eight course lights, you probably could eight <laughs> other beverages, <laughs> eight red stripes. I would I would say it though. I wouldn't I wouldn't not say it because I know yeah. when they when you guys leave when you leave from that beat up bar in, in unsafe Brooklyn and you they go back to their safe apartment and you go back to your apartment with you know this guy Jeb who you don't know and you're like yeah we don't really talk and you go back to your room and you know they're chilling in the living room it's gonna bother you so you have to at least be real about it once with them. Yeah, I don't I don't really like the like, Ryan, I know what you're saying, but I don't I don't really like the chalk it up to the game thing like you. It sucks like it sucks for you. You should be, you are free to be mad about this. Like, I don't think you shouldn't be mad like you should be upset. I they did bone you. I'd be pissed off. You guys all had this plan. They told you that obviously they were going to wait for you in a year and they didn't. And, you know, what, whatever the reason is legitimate or not legitimate, you have the right to be pissed off about it. So I don't think like, you know, you should just be like, hey, it is what it is. Like, I'm, you know, just just put it away. I don't have an issue with him not going on the trip. If he needed to blow off some steam and he thought he was going to say some dumb shit again, I don't have any issues with him taking the time. Uh, but I do agree with you. I, I would not blow off the friendship for sure. I had a similar kind of situation in college. I was studying abroad my junior year. I wasn't abroad. But I was actually going to D.C., it was my it was the spring semester of my junior year. Another guy was going away to Australia the fall semester. So like I was like, oh, cool. We'll just do like a switcheroo thing. It'll be fine. Turns out one of the guys in the room didn't like me, didn't want me to live there for that half year. And I ended up having to live with two randos for basically the first semester before I went away. And it fucking sucked. I was pissed off and I was kind of mad at those guys for a while. But you know what happened? Nobody talks to the guy that didn't like me anymore. We still kind of are in contact. And one of them I'm really good friends with. So Again, it's not worth to what you said, Ryan. It's not worth losing the friends over this, but I do think you have the right to be pissed off. And I think you have every right to tell them how pissed off you are about it. But that doesn't mean you don't have to stop. That doesn't mean you should stop hanging out with them. Um, everything you said, too, like obviously you're going through some other shit with your girlfriend. That sucks. Like all this stuff feels like right, the mom stuff. You. Like this yeah, guy's like, gone through a lot and it sucks. Yeah. Like I have a lot of sympathy for him on that one. So I don't want to sound I, like I'm I, totally against the emailer, but I just think he's going to get too mad about something that's going to be way more costly. But go ahead. I do feel like it is pretty shitty, though. I don't know, man. Like, I'm not saying I, I know like dudes, especially in their early 20s, like I know they're not super considerate. Even my friends now, like we don't talk about our feelings. Like it's it's the classic case of like, you know, the wife being like, did you ask him how this was? And like, no, we didn't talk. <laughs> no, about what are you talking I mean, about? You've known him for 10 years. How do you not know this? I'm like, I don't know. I just don't talk about I'm not it. even sure that's, what his that's, job title is right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what that's what dudes do. So I understand that. But I, I do think it is kind of shitty that like all the shit that you went through that they would not at least like the two and two thing like that. I, that doesn't make any sense. So I totally understand why they wouldn't want to do a two and two thing, but not conceding on a gym, whether or not you want, really want the gym in your building or not. Like we could debate that. Obviously, you guys don't think it's debatable. But even if you want to debate that, I think it is kind of shitty of them to at least not make a concession or two to live with. And now, like the other thing, too, is, uh, is this going to be a one year situation? Are you guys going to try to live together for a couple of years? Like, because now 
the longer is anybody going to get a girlfriend? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. The longer you kick this down the road, the less likely it's going to happen. Like this is probably your only time that it's going to happen. So I don't know. I, I do think the friends are kind of being shitty here, even though I do understand like, yeah, sure. It's easy not to move. It's not great, but I also get it. Okay. Look, I mean, now that I'm thinking about all the different times that it's happened with me being on one end or the other, um, right after college, but I was still living in the college town, lived in a stupid condo outside of Burlington because it was the only thing we could find. And I think our credit was so low. They let us in there. It was a two bedroom deal. My buddy and I were like, let's move back to Burlington because we were in South Burlington. We're like, let's get a two bedroom. And we were looking at the end of August and we were terrible planners and we didn't really have that much money. And we put it off and we put it off. We couldn't fucking find anything. And then all of a sudden we were out and because he bartended at a different place than I did, people knew the owner and they were like, we have a one bedroom opening up next week. And he took it. And he's like, yeah, I got a one bedroom. And he kind of looked at me like, I didn't tell you and I just bailed, but like it was coming up. Nobody had anywhere to go. I moved in with another dude who moved his bedroom into his living room. And then I lived in his bedroom for six months. And then when that was up, I subletted from a kid that was still in college while I was finishing up and working as a manager and working at a TV station. I had a junior semester where I took a semester off because I was so sick of being broke. I stayed back in the vineyard. I was going to bartend, didn't work out. I worked a door, I worked construction. But when I told the guy that I was going to live with in the fraternity, and it basically, I don't even know why he was mad because he ended up with a single. He didn't have to pay for a single. He only had to pay the tenant price. But I was like, hey, I'm not going to move back up. And he like motherfucked me on the phone. He was like, dude, I thought we had a plan. Like, I thought we were going to really let it fly this year and, and this whole thing. I was like, who gives a shit? Your price, like, again, the price, it wasn't like I was moving into a two bedroom apartment and letting him know a month before, hey, you're going to be paying all on your own. He only had to pay what one person had to pay for that room. And that's all he wanted that happened. the camaraderie. Yeah, he wanted to be he wanted to be buds. And and I'm thinking like, hey, I get where you're coming from, but you need to understand where I'm coming from, man. My fucking parents are divorced again. I've got no fucking money. I'm sick of being broke. I'm going to put away a couple grand. I'm already behind a few classes. I already know I'm going to be there five years. So like, this is what I'm going to do. And I'll see you guys in the spring. I had another apartment situation, probably the worst I've ever had. Uh, live with a couple guys, guys I've known a long time. A couple of those guys love drinking GHB as soon as they got home from work. There were fights. There was fucking brutal stuff going on. And I'd be like, dude, I cannot fucking live here. And they were like, you signed a lease. <laughs> like, I didn't sign up for this shit. Like, I didn't <laughs> sign up for any of this. And it was bad. I mean, it was really bad because one of the guys was was a legit badass on every single drug you could possibly imagine. I was like, am I going to get my ass kicked over this? And, you know, I had to show up to the house. and There was like a stare down and a couple of fuck yous. And I was like, I have no idea. I was like, I think probably I, the real answer was I probably had a pretty good idea how I was going to go and I didn't really want to be a part of it. But um, look, you know, it's just shit. The convenience of what can can factor in the decision for the other person is often ignored. Yeah. So I, I think r- real just to put a bow on this. Like our, we had a we had a house. That's my guys. podcast, Kyle. So we <laughs> <laughs> yeah. for, to put a bow I, on this for all. I of us. usually speak less. No, just, go ahead. <laughs> to put out a bow on this for all of us. Uh, in 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 college, we had a five we had a five bedroom house. We had a lot more than five friends. A lot of people wanted to be in that house. We kind of you know we kind of looked. We took stock. We ranked the dudes. And we were like, this is the top five. We know. And but the, you know, but six wasn't a bad dude. Six wasn't six. Break was the dudes. What if yeah. you know if if four got kicked out, which is always in play. Six is right in there. You know that's fine. But um, what what six did? Six and seven and nine or whatever. They fucking got their own apartment. So I know you said that it bothers you that you know uh, you you turn down other you know other roommates because you wanted to be with one, two, and three. You know if you're four. Maybe you should find five and six and then you wouldn't feel you won't be so fucking, uh, you know, bitter about this every single day. If your living situation's also cool. Yeah, but you, you know, can't. So I, That's the point. No, no, I know. But listen, hold on. Hear me out, guy. I think what you do is <laughs> is you, you spend this year getting over yourself a little bit, but also putting lines in the water. Yeah. Keep that line in the water for those guys. One, two and three and see if you could find a four place with a gym and whatever. Or maybe they, you know, maybe they break down and they can go to a gym close by. But also, I think you spend this year trying to trying to get you know find other people that you could live with and maybe have more fun than those guys huh those fellows over there maybe you're having more fun with you with your two bedroom who knows but i'm saying i think you you like if you have a better situation and it's just not you and whoever this fucking guys you're living with that you're probably uncomfortable with and you're probably letting their situation over there making you more uncomfortable with your roommate i think you find you spend this year trying to find pretty good alternatives as well as maybe seeing if this works out next year it's just we're just moving forward here is what i mean or you just start dating a 10. Good luck. Or that. Sounds like they have the cash for it. 
If we have any more of these funnel cakes, we won't be able to fit on the bus. <laughs> Thanks to Kyle. Thanks to Steve. Ryan with Slow Podcast from your Spotify. Must be 21 and older and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com forward slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-800-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org forward slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit Visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net in West Virginia or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts. Or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York.